boy's got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The Diamond League champions have been crowned in Zurich and the 2022 track season is in the books. Faith Kipugon and Jakob Ingebrigtsen were brilliant once again. The GOAT of the Women's 100, Shelly-Anne Fraser-Price, has had the GOAT 100 meter season. We put a bow on the track season that was, offer some reflections, parting shots. In New York, the Scots Jake Whiteman and Laura Muir won the Fifth Avenue Miles on a rainy day on Fifth Avenue. While in Vermont, Ellie St. Pierre has announced she's pregnant and due in March. Congrats, Ellie. Kennedy Sipikele is back. Well, if you count running a 61-on-1 half marathon is back. As Jacob Kiplimo and Helen O'Berry win the Great North Run. That and a whole lot more on the Let's Run Track Talk podcast. This is Jonathan Gold. I am joined by my co-hosts, the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robert and Weldon Johnson. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Jonathan. How are you doing? It's a new age boss. I'm supposed to be worried about your mental well-being, but it just seems like lots been falling apart for you recently. First, your beloved Brighton manager, just quits on his team in the middle of the season and goes to a rival team. Then your beloved queen just abandoned you and drops dead. And now the Patriots, instead of being a winning dynasty, are trying to imitate a JV fault team. And I was thinking, well, at least Jonathan still has his job. He's one of the few old-school journalists still left in the game. He's totally respected by everybody. Until I got up this morning and heard this. From Cooper Tier. So I guess we got to get right into it. Uh, have you? Is this the first, I guess, interview for lack of a better term you've done since the announcement? Did you even make the announcement? How did that play out? No, dude, I'm pissed. There was like <laughs> who reported that? Old, the yeah. Let's Run guy, Trackster. Yeah, dude, Jonathan Gall can go. Yeah, I'm not gonna say. It. Yeah, we go know what you're gonna say about Agreed. his business. Um. Yeah, that was just, like, I thought that was super lame. Just because, like, so I got a text from my agent. And he's like, oh, your, your, like, friends at Let's Run just sent me a thing and wanted to know if, like, you wanted to add anything or if he wanted to add anything because they're, like, posting that, like, I'm joining that team. Uh, and I was like, how do they know? They knew from, like, this random dude that I've never even heard of. Uh, and then it said, like, yeah, this guy, Dave Ross, and then, like, a couple other, like, notable sources it's like i don't know who even knows and then yeah so that was kind of that was pretty lame that they posted that and like didn't ask me or anything and like obviously i hadn't had the chance to post it yet so that'll probably be coming in the next couple like couple days probably but uh yeah so i i I think i will be declining any let's run interview requests in the near future yeah i guess bowerman that was Cooper Tier on the Hills and Two podcast. What a strange clip, John. What a strange modern world we live in. I mean, men can be women, women can become men. And Cooper Tier can go on to a podcast and complain that you didn't give him the opportunity to announce that he was joining the Bowerman Tri Club when ex- you, in fact, did exactly that. 
you reached out to his agent and said, hey, we know this information. We're going to be publishing it. Would Cooper like to make a statement? He declined to make a statement and now is complaining that you beat him to the punch. <laughs> you went out of your way to be the professional journalist. We could have just broken the story. We had this rock solid multiple sources. John, I've got your back. If Cooper Tier doesn't want to do your interviews, you can interview me instead. Oh, man. I feel like I interview you every week on this show, Robert. But uh, Yeah, I appreciate that. Look, I, I reached out to Cooper, like I said, and gave him a few hours to respond. Maybe it should have been more, but, you know, this is this was a major story in track and field. We had to write a story on it. We can't just sit on it. I wouldn't be doing my job to you guys or to my readers if we didn't publish something on it once we had it confirmed. So it's unfortunate Cooper feels that way. I wasn't, I felt like I tried to be fair to him and hopefully you can mend that fence, but you know, that was, that was, I was just trying to do my job. John, you're doing your job. Excellently. No need to apologize, but we have reached out to Cooper. People say stuff on the podcast. This is the first we've heard of it. His agent could have written you. Cooper could have written you. We're, we're an open book here, but as an entity, now when somebody does something like this, we do reach out, try to, I don't know, mend the fences a bit, tell Cooper, like, hey, if you got an issue with something we do, let us know. Because earlier in the year, John, we were going to report Cooper had COVID, and Cooper said, hey, I would like to release the news first. And we don't have to not release it. We said, sure, go ahead. So I don't know, but I, 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 I'm creating a new document. Athletes, we pissed off. Athletes, we have to reach out to. This was pretty mild. I'm thinking Cooper's just saying something on a podcast. He's probably in cahoots with these guys, right? The Twos and Hills podcast he wants their viewership to go up. So we make a big story about it. Now it goes up. I don't think there's any need to dive into any conspiracy theories. Come on, John. You got to go with it. Got to go with it these days. Cooper did a great young runner. I've always enjoyed interviewing him. I think hopefully things will be all right moving forward. But lots of other things to talk about uh, in track and field this week. We just had the Diamond League Finals last week. Now, if you are a Let's Run.com supporters club member, you will have already listened to our recap of the three-hour Diamond League Final on Thursday in Zurich. That was actually day two. Remember, there was another day the street meet we dove into everything in great detail analyzed it broke it all down and that was only available for our lensrun.com supporters club members as a podcast you can join that by going to lensrun.com slash subscribe you will get a bonus podcast every single week plus great discounts on shoes t-shirt tons of great stuff benefits being a member of that uh, but for those who didn't listen to the podcast, I think there are a few things we can revisit from Zurich. I don't know. what. Well, anything stand out to you? We're now five days beyond it. We had some particularly great performances in the 1500s. The close by Faith Kipigon. We had a world leader by Jakob Ingebrigtsen, 359.02. Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, one of our greatest hundreds ever. What's what are you still thinking about from that meet now that we're on to next week? Well, John, if it wasn't for us recording this podcast, I'm over it. 
The track season's over. That's sort of what I think after Zurich. I mean, sure, we even had Zagreb a couple of days after, but the end of the Diamond League is, I don't know if sadness is the right word. I started more thinking about big picture for the season than the actual meet. And we were saying at the time, like, I mean, our sport is just in a, such an interesting place in general. People are like, oh, we want more action, less human interest. And we were like, wait, that might have been too much of a meet. Three hours. Felt maybe Brussels meet was better. But big picture this meet, Shelly and Fraser Price, statistically the best runner of her career ever. Fastest, once you adjust for the wind. We had a world leader in the 1500. I mean, that's like the premier men's 1500 for let's run distance, guys. That's the premier thing. Faith Kipiegan, oh my God, she's good. So the, the meet did deliver. Well, did it deliver though? I feel like Brussels delivered because for a meet, to, I guess, all right, I am complaining. We had a world leader, like you said, but there was also a world leader in the 800, Emmanuel Correa. Kipigon was amazing, but I don't think it was a problem with this meet being three hours long. I was just thinking like most of the events felt pretty predictable. Brussels, we had some nice upsets. You know, Mondo de Plantes lost, Shelly Ann Fraser Price lost. We had Sierra McGeehan winning the 1500 in a fast time, 356. This one just felt, felt like a bit of a return to normalcy. It showed what we most of the core beliefs or what we come to believe about the track season. Most of those were sort of ratified with the results of Zurich. And that, to me, is why it was a little less exciting than Brussels, not because it was three hours long. I think three hours long, if you go on final, 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 that can be great, but you need to have some crazy results, some things people didn't see coming. I don't think there was that much of it in this meet. I guess you could do final, 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 but I think you need anticipation. You need some pausing in sporting events. I mean, we had the Fifth Avenue Mile, which is on NBC this year. I, I can't figure out some of the TV stuff there. It's great. Anytime sport is on network TV, that's still the best way to get a big audience. But that's two races in an hour, and it's an entertaining product. So it's, it's just sort of interesting how the sport can be presented. And then the thing we always talk about, you know, the, some of the – who are the two biggest stars right now in American track and field female? Sydney McLaughlin and I think Mo. And how many Diamond League races have they run since World Championships? Not a one. Combined, John. Combined. Add them up. It's as many as I've run. Can I interrupt and do a factual correction here? I think the biggest track and field star in America is, is Shakari Richardson. I was checking my investments by reading the Wall Street Journal this morning. What was the big story? What was the big picture? It's a picture of Shakari. Wall Street Journal, because it looks like they've heard that marijuana still will be banned in the years to come. The official list hasn't come out yet, but that's the rumor. They're talking about her, but yeah. Shakari was there in Zurich. She was last place. I want to give her credit for racing. These other women, look, big picture for me, uh, for some reason, I don't know, it's weird, the meat wasn't as much fun as as the as what Brussels, but I, I don't know why. I really enjoyed the, the first day, um, with the field events and the five thousands, which I complain about those five thousands. We can talk about whether that's appropriate to run a, a five thousand on this weird track, but I don't know. Like if I, if I take a step back, I I, I enjoyed it. The eight hundred was amazing. Emmanuel Career, 
men's 800 was a great race coming from behind to win. I just think, as John said it, he he's won the four biggest 800. He only won two races all year this year. Lost and year. they were what? He won two races last year. This year he won four races actually. Okay. So last year he wins two races: the Olympics and and the Diamond League final. This year he wins worlds in the Diamond League final. So that was good. And the 1500s, they were fascinating to me. Whenever Edgar Brinson races, I'm always going to be fascinated trying to figure out what's going to happen in the Worlds next year. Does he have the speed, et cetera? So I just love watching him. But I, I wanted to see Faith Kipiegon in a tactical race. We haven't seen a lot of those. And I'm like, why doesn't Segei try to make it slow? People were wondering if she was vulnerable. Absolutely not. Yeah, 57-7, lost lap. 27-8, lost 200. She demolished everyone, and she does that in a four-flat race. There's no way to beat her. This is why she's the best female miler we've ever seen, because she can run 350 from the front, or she can just control the race. People were scared to pass her in this race from it. Like, it wasn't going all that fast, but no one wanted to go past Faith Kipigon because they know she's the top dog, and she proved why. And I think there was one thing we learned a big time about this race, about this meet, and I'm going to start naming it. I did not put it, give it this name in the week that was, but I think that when this happens in the years to come, it should be named the Weldon Johnson rule. Right now, if you win the world title and you you get a buy to Worlds, I'm not sure if they even should have that buy because I don't like these U.S. It really impacts the U.S. meet, which is a great meet. Stars don't show up or they run the first round and then back out of the final. But Weldon Johnson has a great idea. Hey, if you don't run in the Diamond League final, you lose your your world's, your world's bye as a world champion. And we got to reward people that are racing and, and helping grow the sport. And I think that's a very good rule. Jonathan Gold added maybe an addendum. Like he said, look, USATF doesn't have to send four. Like they could have a rule themselves that if you're the world champion, you've got to make an honest effort in the final at USA's. You know, you can't just beg out or not show up or run the first round, claim you're injured. Um, so I, I like both those rules and I want to give you guys credit for those ideas. Yeah, because USATF, I feel like they have the power to put their foot down here. This rule, let's be real, defending world champions in almost every other country are going to be on that team pretty much every year because very few nations have the depth in those events. Uh, you might see it occasionally for, you know, Timothy Chariot. He actually, he was, you know, he wouldn't have had a bye to the Olympics, but he didn't finish in the top three at the Kenyan trials and he had to get put on the team. You'd see Jake Whiteman, the Britain's 1500 meter running is so deep right now. He wouldn't be a guaranteed top three next year, but for a lot of these countries, the world champion is going to be named to that team no matter what. In the U.S., it's not necessarily true. Oh, they just have more world champions than every other country, and so you're taking away more stars from the U.S. championship. So yeah, USATF could say, "Hey, if you're not if you're in the top four, you're on the team. But if you're not in the top four, no, sorry, we're not picking you." I think the honest effort rule, rule is fine, Robert. Now there's going to be a little. Judgment, you might have some suspicion, but I think that is better than the current system we have, which is you can show up, you can run one round. You don't even, now, 
they've moved the goalpost. You don't even need to run USAs. Dalil Muhammad and Michael Cherry didn't run USAs this year, and the USATF still gave them the buy. So that is what they've set up going forward. And you have to think that now that that's the precedent, you're going to have more athletes in 2023 not running USAs because they don't need to. And that's a big problem. Because we saw what was one of the best races of the entire year, the men's 200-meter final at USAs. Noah Lyles versus Arian Knight. Noah Lyles didn't need to run that race. He had to buy. He ran it. We got incredible drama. It was great for the sport. That's what we need more of in this sport. And do you think Noah Lyles will run the USAs next year? I don't. I think this year he needed the he needed to get his mojo back. He needed to prove he was back. Next year, when Knighton's rising up, maybe the guy to beat, Noah's going to beg out of that one. I don't know. Knighton was rising up this year. Knighton ran 19.49. I thought Knighton was the favorite of USA's. You did too. And Noah Lyles still ran it. So we'll see. Noah Lyles is doing what he wants to do. But I don't think this means that he's not going to run next year. How much are you guys going to bet? I think we need a little side bet here. I bet you 10 bucks from it. If he's health, if Noah Lyles is healthy, he will run USA's and he will run all three rounds in the 200. Needs to be $20, $19.31, John. I, I like that. $19.31. You're wrong. You think he won't run the, you think he won't run the final at USA's. Co- correct. I don't know why I'm banging the Niles because he ran a lot of 200s this year, but I'm just down on the sport. So, okay. You're on. Oh, oh wait, oh, wait. A better bet would be Sydney McLaughlin. For the record, her name is McLaughlin. Oh, no, that's not. That's not even her name. John, please tell our viewers, remind us what her new name is. Yes, Robert lost to correct me and he, he forgets what her hyphenated name is. It's Sydney McLaughlin LeBron. That's her name. Do I think she'll run the final of the U.S. championships next year? No, I do not. Or in the 400 meter, sorry, in the 400 meter hurdles, I should say. And I hope that's because she's running the individual 400, which is planning on doubling in both events and worlds. Because if you look, if she wants to run the individual 400 or some other event other than 400 hurdles at the World Championships, she will need to run all three rounds. Look, people are going to view us as angry old white men because we've been complaining on how she never does race because she's going to eventually end up doing the 400-400 hurdle double, and it's going to be a big deal. People aren't going to pay attention. Look, if you go crazy at Worlds, I guess, I mean, should I give you a pass for blowing off the regular season? I don't know. But people are like, I know that there's a few people like, the USATF can't bar them from Worlds. They've got to give them the wild card because they might meddle. Like, to me, I, and I know if you look, I just looked up about USATF, like what is their what is their actual purpose? And at the top is selecting teams to Worlds. But like the NFL, American football, they don't just give the best teams buys. They, they don't, they make it competitive. Sometimes the big people go out early. That's fine. That's part of sport. Yeah. You know what I think? This is the problem the NBA has been trying to solve is getting the spark, the stars to compete more, to not have them sit out the regular season. If the NBA had a power that can say, hey, you have to compete at this meet in order to go to the finals or something like that, yes, they would institute that rule. So I don't see it as being all that different. I feel like we've had some variant of this conversation for two months now. So I don't know if we need to linger too much longer on this topic, but... I think the system should change. 
Well, I want Sydney to go one or two directions. She shouldn't race at all. Run the first round of USA's in the 400 meter hurdles, show up at Worlds and like break the world record. And that's it. Just to show like what a farce this whole thing is. Or I think she probably will double. I mean, it, it's hard to criticize her because when she shows up, she breaks the world record. I think Mo, I mean, she's a great personality. She's fun. So who knows why she didn't run after Worlds this year? This is a more difficult season. I mean, she's 20 years old. She's the greatest mid-distance runner ever in America. I mean, both these women are the future. They could be there 2028 LA. Like they could be both of them because they both can double, could be bigger than Alice and Felix, right? I mean, they already both have as many gold medals as Alice and Felix at an individual event. And they could they could start getting Olympic gold medals. Yeah, Olympic gold medals. And they could start getting the relay golds. I guess they can't really get the hundred meter four by one, but the, the possibility, oh my God, if they could race each other at 400. I don't know how good a thing Mo could be at 400, but uh, I, I do. Really, really good. Yeah, right? I think Mo's like, already run 49.7. Do you forget that? She's the NCAA champion last year. I, I think if she ran the 400 this year, she would have medals at Worlds in the 400. I don't think she wins, but there's the potential there, right? So it's like, wow, both of them could just really go at it. Um so hopefully they are doubling next year, competing a little more often because that's what the sport needs. I mean, I don't know. Like, does women's golf benefit when Annika Sorensen retires and never competes again? No. You know, everyone's free to do what they want. There's a lot of sports that people, but when they're still competing, we need them competing for fans and whatnot if we can. And I think this incentive system's, Incentive systems need to be slightly improved or tweaked or whatever, but it's kind of the same problem PGA Tour had all these years. Oh, you can't force people to play, that sort of stuff. All right, another thing I wanted to address from this Diamond League final was this temporary track in the town square in Zurich. Now, I'll admit, it looks kind of cool in the backdrops. You get the Opera House there. You have all these field events going on in the infield. I actually thought Thursday's meet was pretty awesome. Because as Robert said, you know, you had a bunch of different stuff going on. Joe Kovacs goes 23-23 in the shot put, which is the third best throw in history. That was unexpected. It was surprising. That was exciting. Mutaza Sabashim bombs out in the high jump, and you have it coming down to Jim Marco Tamberi and Javon Harrison. Again, exciting, unexpected. This is sort of the stuff that the sport feeds off. And then the the two 5,000 meters, you had Americans in contention for the win on the final lap. And I enjoyed those races as well. And this track, it's a 560 meter kind of egg-shaped track. There's some very tight turns. It doesn't count as a official track times, even though the times were quite fast. So you had sub-13 winning time in the men's race. But it also, you can't set a road race world record on there. It's just kind of this hybrid weird thing. The camera angles can get weird. The coverage for the men's race was also awful. They missed the first part of the race. I don't know. I just didn't like this. I think, okay, I don't mind having a gimmick like this for one meet earlier in the year. And I get how you get some crowds out there. But this is one of the most important 5,000 meter races of the year. I think it should be run in the stadium. Everyone can see exactly what's happening because we don't have to worry about Jacob Kropp or Thierry and Dicka Mwenayo 
getting better at the pronunciation, guys. DNFing in the first mile of the race, and even the announcers don't know what's going on because they're not getting a feed. So my thing is, this should not be determined the Diamond League champion. It should be a track race. It should not be this temporary thing in the town square. Normally, I would be there with you. I'm not sure that I am, though. First of all, it was a track race. It just wasn't a normal 400-meter track. They consider it to be a road time. I think it should count as a road time. I mean, time. we need to get away from times. Although we can't totally get away from times because that's the problem with the sport. Inherently, when somebody runs, particularly in sprinting, which is generally an all-out event in your own lane, you finish and you're like, wow, I won this race, but I wouldn't have won that race. You know, the only thing that there's really making things doubted is maybe the surface, the wind, and the, and the temperature. But, John, these races were wildly entertaining. Now, maybe if they keep doing it, for years, people will know, but they were run differently. When have we ever seen a guy getting, well, damn it, you'll answer this question correctly. Here's the question. When have we ever seen someone get dropped in a 5,000 and then come back to win it? Get dropped in a 5,000 and come back to oh, win actually, it. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just I thinking, I'm thinking when. of, we saw this, didn't we see this a month ago in Monaco when the same guy, Berhu Aragawi, he's going out and trying to break the world record and then he fades and and Dikumawenayo runs him down. I mean, it, it feel like it's not that uncommon for a guy to get go out really hard and get just get run down. We see it in sort of record attempts. We saw it in the women's five thousand earlier this year when Kade went for the world record and Eugene. I guess we didn't know what was happening. We didn't realize he was running pretty even sixty ones the whole way, but you know, he gets ahead and then Fisher and who ended up winning it, John? Jacob Nicholas Kipkoria. Or Nicholas Camelli. I call yeah. him Camelli. I don't like what he what? Well, he goes by Kipkoria now. Used we to need be another rule. You compete one time under your name, and it stays in that name unless you're married or divorced. And either that or your agent is fired for not getting your name correct. Your agent cares so much about you. The guy who takes 15 to 20% of your money cares so much about you. He doesn't even know your name when you run your first pro race. So that needs to be the Robert Johnson rule. Your name should be correct 100% of the time when you first compete. But what are you guys talking about dropped and coming back to win? He didn't win. Grant Fisher got dropped, came back, but he didn't win. No, he's talking about Nicholas Kipkora. He was completely dropped? Yeah. He was like five seconds back at the bell. It was pretty crazy because he didn't even... It's... The the leaders ran the the lot. Oh, sorry. Let me find the stats on this. While you're doing that, John, yeah, I was focused on Grant Fisher, and I was like, oh, not a good race for him. He's getting dropped. But that is the one thing with the with the uneven track. You think people would be able to judge their pace because, but maybe they go off more of the splits or maybe the turns throw them off because Fisher. I guess Kip Career slash Camelli, both. I mean, they went really hard, I guess, the second to last lap because they both fell off. And then I noticed at the end, I'm like, oh my God, Fisher's right back in this. Until what the final, oh, I say straight, but half the time the final straight, there's another turn after it. And then I think some guys don't even know like which turn the final straight is. It's one of the interesting things with this setup of this track. Yeah, the the final lap leader to leader was... 61.44, which you never see in a Diamond League 5K. It's 61.44 at 400 pace, because remember, it's a little bit longer. It's a 563-meter track. And 
Kip Korea was four or five seconds back, so he's probably running 55, of, sorry, 56 second pace or something like that. But it also means Aragawi, who was the leader at the bell, he was four seconds back of Kip Korea, which means he closed in about a 65 pace for his last lap. You rarely see someone just totally run out of gas that much. So I, this is why I'm saying I don't mind that this happens in a Diamond League race. It's okay to be one race per year. Now, I think the issue with that is if you say, okay, we're going to make this road race in Stockholm or we're going to, or sorry, still a track race, but whatever you want to call this, we're going to do this temporary track in Stockholm or some other town like that. Some of the guys might just say, screw that. I don't want to run this race. This is a weird track. I might get injured or something. I'm not going to go over there and do it. If you make it a Diamond League final, they have to do it. So I admit that's an issue, but I'd rather see the Diamond League final be in the stadium. Yeah, that was one of the best posts in the message boards. Like they kind of liked it, but they're like, this isn't worthy of the Diamond League final. You need a, a standard oval. But the problem is people probably would be reluctant to run it in a regular season. So look, if Zurich needs this to get the money for the Diamond League final and the crowds, I mean, it was a very well attended meet, it was very well supported. I guess I'm willing to do it, but ideally, I'd like the final. It, it, it's weird. Like, we're building up to the final, but then the final to me almost feels like an afterthought. It's like a reward for the people who actually competed instead of like this big championship. But, well, because we have a world championship in our sport, so it, which was two months ago. Last year, when they first did this, it bugged me more than this year. It's some weird, you can't use the word oval, track worthy of the Diamond League final. Probably not. But guys, we're not going to worry about it next year. Diamond League final. We'll change up to the track and field season. We'll be in Eugene, Oregon. Prefontaine Classic. I will make no predictions about the crowd. My God, please sell that one out. But this this track, someone else who might like it is Joe Kovacs. So, John, you said it's a 560 millimeter meter track. I got an email today from, I guess, some the PR firm built by Konica, largest mobile track in the world. They build it in two days. Now I want to know the cost of this because like your local high school track in America, this is what's problem with, with everything in America. It costs like a quarter million dollars, I think. Yet they lay this thing down in two days. And it was amazing. And I assume the same service was used in the shot put. And I... I uh, like, where did this come from? Joe Kovacs, 23-23. That's 0.14 meters off the world record. A foot farther than he's ever thrown before. Like, I, I, I don't know. Do you think somehow, you know, there was like a gap? It wouldn't make much of a difference, but they're throwing on this thing and then where it's landing is somewhere else. Is, did you think that somehow that influences how far he's thrown? It doesn't make any sense to me, but I knew he was good, but not this good. Look, whenever I see crazy good or crazy bad marks at a street meet, my antenna goes up a little bit. Sort of. Now, this is the thing, though. If Ryan Krauser had thrown that far, I don't think I would have been really all that shocked because we've seen him throw over 23 meters before. And look, Joe Kovacs, he's had, he has thrown 2291. That was his PB from the World Championship Final in Doha. In 2019, he's a two-time world champ. He was the silver medalist this year, throwing 2289. If I was to say, like, does this guy have a 23-meter throw 
or 23-2 in him at like some regular meet if he really caught a great day. I could believe it. So maybe it just happened to come on this weird setup. I mean, look, I don't I'm not an expert about what the ring was like. I can't and I can't go out there and say, oh, those it was off for this reason. I would just say, like, yeah, oh, that's a little interesting, you know, that he just happened to have his best throw at this strange Dime League setup, but I don't think that's enough for me to be saying to us going around saying, oh, this shouldn't count, you know. I mean, John, this is it is in Switzerland. They're very precise over there. I figured it's got to be accurately done, measured. Maybe this is a different environment, right? You're not on the track. There is like this. There, I mean, you could almost, this wasn't the case, but you could almost have like a moat between like where you're throwing the shot and where the thing lands. Like there was like a little walkway there where it wasn't grass, like a, maybe mentally something's different. Maybe it was just a perfect day. I don't know. I can't make sense of it. But some of these road races, different setups, and people kicking early essentially in the 5K are not judging their things. It's sort of what makes these road races interesting. These street meets or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. I'm not saying you said, oh, next year that we don't have to worry about this 5K being outside the stadium or anything because it's going to be at the at Haywood Field. Do you remember the Tracktown Summer Series? From a couple of years, they had a 5K road race that went around outside the stadium. Or what if they decide, hey, we're going to have the 5K. We're going to do it in downtown Portland the day before. I could totally see both of those options being considered. Uh, I Like I said, I think it makes more sense to have it in the stadium. You have it two day, How about we do a two-day meet like we usually do for the Diamond League final? Distance night, then sprint night the next day. But I'm not saying... I, it could definitely be outside the stadium. They could figure out a way to do that. No, 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 no. First of all, I didn't remember that it was in Eugene. This is going to be so exciting. But, boy, the 5,000 was Steve Prefontaine's event. It needs to be in the damn stadium, period. If they want to do something in the shop put in Portland, go ahead. I think we should have a distance tonight. If it's a two-day meet, let's make the conditions ripe. Let them rip it. I don't think the dates are out. We need to get our Airbnbs because that place is impossible to stay at. Speaking of Steve Prefontaine, hope you guys listened to the interview with Frank Shorter. 50th anniversary of his 1972 Olympic gold. You missed it. It's in the archives. We re-released it as a solo podcast, so you don't have to listen to us banter about Brussels before it. We talk about how Frank told Pre he was stupid in 1972. I think those were the words, John. It was interesting. A trip down memory lane. I learned stuff. Guy I've always wanted to talk to because he was a personal inspiration of mine since we went to the same college. So I enjoyed Frank. I'm thinking I'm putting clips out about Frank this week. I don't know why we didn't do it last week besides just re-releasing the whole thing because there are lots of little nuggets of wisdom in that thing. Oh yeah, I loved how he described his racing style in the marathon that he would just surge in the middle of the race and then slow back down, but he'd hope to get a big enough gap on the field to hold it. That's just, I, no one does that really in the marathon these days. If you make a move, you try to hold it the whole way. He didn't do that. And Robert, is John Kellogg there? Like, I want to refund on my training. I thought I had the greatest coach ever. Frank went through a sample training week. Has John, Robert, can you bring John in here? I mean, this isn't arranged. Frank said, essentially, I never ran any speed work under 65 second pace. 
for miles, whatever it was. He essentially trained with pre a lot of the no, time. No, over. Slower. He never ran over. it slower than 65 yeah, second me. per 400 pace. Meanwhile, I never, I, I had almost never even ran anything at 65 second pace, like ever. So, is, Robert, can you yell at John Kellogg or something? All right, let me ask John. John Kellogg, your most famous, well, I don't know if that's true. If Weldon was your most famous runner that you've ever coached, at least in Let's Run Circles. He's complaining that when he interviewed Frank Shorter, Frank Shorter said all of his speed works was under 65 seconds per lap. He hardly ever raced that fast. Did you make a mistake with his coaching? Maybe it could be the other way around. What if John Frank Shorter was coached by John Kellogg? I mean, I think we did enough speed work with all the short strides and then those things like 800 at, 20, at 210 down to 205. And those that's sub-65 pace right there. And then things like 300s after it, still averaging about you know 45, 43 to 48 on those. That's under 65 pace. Didn't do them very often, but you know, as long as you stay in touch with your short speed, you don't need to do that much um, oxygen uptake work or really intense stuff. It was enough. Okay, John, thank you. I remember the 800, 300s. And I, I could think of one workout where I really did that. I always thought of Walden's favorite workout was five times 800, four by 300. The reality is you're not really running under 60. Your PB is 67 seconds per lap, so you don't really need to run under 65 seconds very often. Yeah, that was plenty of enough speed for the 10,000. You're running 67s on that thing. You know, as long as you do something a little bit quicker than that, just to become comfortable with it. Plus, you finished off a few of those things in like 59s, something like that, a couple of times. Those are like 28.50. I think you know, there was a 28.54 you, you ran there. Had a, a 57, to, I think 57 on one of them. And then at Mount Sac, you closed in 27. You know, you hardly ever ran faster than that in a workout. You don't really need to work on your speed that much. So, John, did Frank Shorter have it wrong? If you bring Frank Shorter to today's era or pre-today's era, like what are they running? Is Frank Shorter a 205 guy or 203 guy? Is pre a 1245 guy? No, I think they would run faster with the shoe technology, of course, and maybe with the rabbits. But pre might not have had, pre probably wouldn't have had the, the discipline to just sit behind a rabbit all these, a front runner. But yeah, I don't know how fast those guys would run. I would say probably run, uh, my guess would probably be like 207 and 13 flat. So you think Grant Fisher's a better runner than Steve Prefontaine? Yeah, probably. The myth. I mean, you went 1322. I mean, I don't know if you're going to chop off more than you know, like 25 seconds off of that, given every advantage that they've got nowadays. Might, but it's probably not very likely. John, they weren't going to altitude? I don't know, John. Wow, you just pissed off a lot of people. Okay. Thank you. We appreciate the honesty, John. If you're Coach Frank Shorter, how fast would he have run? John, before you leave, he said, if you'd Coach Frank Shorter, how fast would he have run? Um, no telling. I mean, I think he still would have won the Olympic uh, gold medal. <laughs> that, that was all he had to do. You can only beat who shows up, right? Correct. Correct. If you're interested in John Killen coaching you, John and I are often motivated to respond to our emails, but email us at coachmud.com. 
I need to get back to my high school prodigy, John, whose father went to Dartmouth. We emailed him the plans, but we haven't seen how the season's going. All right, can we talk about another weird race from last week? Fifth Avenue Mile. I mean, it's not weird. It's been on, run on the same course for 41 years, but not your traditional track race is what I meant. And the Scots won the race. Laura Muir and Jake Whiteman, the world champion, both win. Now, John Scott, we, we've talked about this in another podcast. That's kind of like saying someone from Alabama, right? That's the way you Brits view them. No, because there's no equivalent well, wait. designation. It would be more like, uh, it's kind of like saying like someone from Puerto Rico because you're an American citizen, but you're not part of the United States. Well, but it's not really like that. There's just no apples to apples well, comparison. Well, what John didn't even correct him. Robert said that that's how you Brits view them. Scots are British, John. I mean, the Royal Watcher guy, I was reading Megan and Harry's Royal guy. He doesn't really, I think he's an American guy. He didn't really know that Scotland was part of Great Britain. And Robert just botched it there and John ignored it. Well, no, of course, Scotland's part of, Scotland's part. So it's part of the island of Great Britain. It's also part of the United Kingdom of, and Scotland is where the queen was when she died. That She was at Balmoral, which is a Scottish castle. So yes, of course, Scotland's part of Great uh, Britain. But Robert said, you Brits, do you consider Scots to be Brits? Yes. Okay, just making sure. Well, what do you mean? Well, then Americans make fun about people from Alabama all the time. So, by the way, I'm glad the Crimson Tide beat my Texas Longhorns. I'm rooting against Texas now. But anyways, I just, this race, NBC, it's great that it's on national TV in America. And I'm glad that they're getting sort of more of an international field. They had a Japanese runner on the women's side. They had some Spaniards, Spanish people. Used to be kind of be almost an all-American affair. I'm still waiting for the top Kenyans to show up and, or, and also Jakob Ingebrigtsen. To me, this was a missed opportunity for Mr. Ingebrigtsen. He loves to race. Why wouldn't he want to come over here with his girlfriend, get a free trip to America? I guess he makes so much money. If he wants to come to America, he'd probably fly over. But look, there's no rabbits in this one. He could have just tried to sit on Whiteman. If he loses, it's not a big deal. Just You just blow it off as a right race. But if he outkicks him, it gives him confidence that maybe he should let it roll next year in a kick. Because how is he going to know if he has if he has any chance of letting it roll in a kick? Because he never is going to be in a tactical race between now and, and Worlds. I need to interject here. Robert's obsession with Whiteman versus Ingebrigtsen is growing by the week. I feel like you bring about bring this rivalry up, even though they haven't raced each other off since Worlds. You bring it up off that every time Jakob runs is like, oh, is this how is this going to affect his chances of beating Jake Whiteman at the World Championships next year? And I'm just gonna say this. It reminds me of when an NBA or an NFL team they construct their team specifically to defeat a specific opponent. And then someone else comes along and it's better than both of them. And it's like, wait, I was planning on beating, I, I built my team to beat the Chiefs. And actually, now the team I have to worry about is the Rams. Like, oh no, I think you're zeroing in on these two guys as the only ones who can possibly win the world championships next year. And I just don't see it being that way. There are other challenges that, that could emerge. Like one year ago, at this point, one year ago, when, you, when you're looking at the challenges for Ingebrigtsen, at the world championships, you would have been like, all right, he has to do everything he can to put himself in position to beat Jake Whiteman. 
that's just not how you would approach an event. And I don't think it's sensible to do it this year, especially Whiteman won the biggest race of the year, but he lost at Commonwealth. He's not, it's not like it's just those two and then everyone else. Fair enough. This morning that I'm on the spectrum and kind of obsessed about it. I hadn't really thought about it. Maybe it will be Niels Laros, the 17 year old Dutch star who, has broken Jakob Ingebrigtsen's under-18 European record this year by running 339.46 in Lucerne a month. But anyways, Whiteman had a great year. I guess the odds of him replicating this year and being in the same shape next year, you know, they're not 100%. Whereas I'd be shocked. Like, what are the odds that Jake Jakob Ingebrigtsen doesn't break 330 next year? I'd put, like, put it at less than 5%. What about Jake Whiteman doesn't do it? I'd put it at probably like one thirty-three percent. Yeah, I think we've just had this conversation before. Is that when you're the very, very, very top of the sport, it's very hard to stay there unless like you're, you're sort of an all-time talent. And I think that Jakob Ingebrigtsen is an all-time talent. I'm not convinced that Jake Whiteman is an all-time talent, but. Yeah, no disrespect for what, to what he accomplished this year. And he absolutely could be back there challenging. He has the skill set to beat him. We know that. It's just, to this point, he'd never even really been close to a medal at a global 1500 championships. And now suddenly we're saying, oh yeah, he's definitely going to be back at that level again next year. It's just, I feel like it's a little presumptuous. Do I expect Jake Whiteman to challenge Jakob Ingebrigtsen next year? Probably not, maybe, but I sure didn't expect it this year. I mean, I view that guy so differently this year. What an amazing season. I didn't think he could run 143. I never thought he'd be the world champion. Sure, he'd won Fifth Avenue twice, but I sort of, that doesn't mean anything to me. But maybe I should reassess it. Men's running is a little more competitive. I mean, Jenny Simpson, she was really good, obviously, a medalist. Won this thing, what, eight times or something? Nick Willis won a bunch, two-time medalist. So if you consistently win this thing, even at the end of the season, maybe I should give you credit because three in a row now. But guys, I think the big picture from Fifth Avenue was Laura Muir destroying Jenny Simpson's course record. The course record was 4-14-4. Excuse me, 4-16-1. And Laura ran 4-14-4. Destroyed it. 1.7 seconds, if you're doing the math. Third place, Nikki Hiltz, three seconds back. I mean, that's an wait, wait absolute destruction. Why are we shocked by this? Laura Muir ran 3.55 this year. Jenny Simpson's never run faster than 3.57. Why, why is this weird at all? I guess it was a little wet, but to me, Jenny Simpson should be a few seconds slower than Laura Muir in a road mile. Last time I looked, there's been this 41 years of the Fifth Avenue mile, and when a course record is set, that's a big deal. Yeah, but you, you're just, I guess, you say you were presenting it as if it was shifting your perspective about something. To me, it's just saying, I guess I misinterpreted that. Because to me, it's Laura Muir is fitter than pretty much any woman who's run the Fifth Avenue mile before. She shows up, she runs the course record because she ran 355 this summer. That's the way I view it. Yeah, no, that does nothing to change my perception. I was not trying to get that point across. Okay. And 
the crazy thing for me, guys, is do you guys know when the course record on the men's side was set? Yes, I know. It was 1981, the first year the race was held, which made me think, did they possibly mismeasure it or was Sidney Marie that that uh, that good? But look, a few things. Y'all raised some good points that I wanted to mention about Fifth Avenue. One is, call me sexist, but how much more competitive men's running is than women's running? Like, look, I am focused on Whiteman versus Ingebrigtsen, but if it's not Whiteman, it's probably going to be somebody else that's capable of running 329 low. And if you're capable of running 329 low, well, is Ingebrigtsen vulnerable in that type of race if he's having to do all the work to lead it? That's really what I'm interested in. I mean, Josh Kerr ran 329 low at the Olympics last year. So somebody else will probably be able to, there'll probably be somebody else in the world being able to do that. And will that person be able to challenge Ingebrigtsen? But Fifth Avenue results, there's basically 10 guys within two seconds of the win. I mean, Josh Kerr ran 351.7, so he's 2.1 seconds off the win. Whereas on the women's race, I know it's a course record and they ran faster, but nobody finishes within three seconds of Miss Moore. Well, back to this first Fifth Avenue. I assume David Katz wasn't old enough to measure it. He's the premier course measure. He's a New Yorker. But I found a New York Times article from, looks like Fifth Avenue was a little later in the year. Maybe they waited till all the track meets were over. September 27th, 1981. It's the day Nolan Ryan threw his fifth no-hitter. There's an article about a young quarterback named John Elway in the newspaper. Something about the NASL. Soccer finals. Interesting. This is all front page of the sports, by the way. Not sure what kind of coverage it gets now. Soccer and track and field were on the front page of the New York Times sports section in 1981. American soccer, John. American soccer. The New York City Cosmos were a big deal, so I think they were being supplanted or something. And this article starts. I'll just read the first two sentences. Fifth Avenue became Sydney Marie's showcase yesterday en route to the second fastest mile ever run, three minutes, 47 seconds, and 52 hundredths. Ten other runners also finished in under four minutes as an enthusiastic crowd estimated by the police at between 100 and 150,000 formed a human funnel from 82nd Street to 62nd Street. I just want to say for the record, I'm always skeptical of police estimates. I feel like every championship parade in the history of championship parades has been overestimated. There's never as many people as they say there are. The, we were told there were 200,000 people on the streets of Atlanta for the trials this year. I don't believe that. So 100 to 150,000. I, I thought you were saying for this year's race, well, and I'm like, that is a fallacy. There is absolutely zero chance that was true this year. 1981, things were different. Less things were going on. People didn't have the internet or, you know, cable TV wasn't as widespread. Maybe you could convince me if this thing was marketed well, you might be able to get 100,000 people, but certainly not in 2022. No, we got to find the thread. Someone did a thread on like the New York City Marathon. To have a million people on a marathon course is like logistically almost impossible. They had to be like so deep the whole way. To put 150,000, 100,000, that's bigger than Giant Stadium. It's like two Giant Stadiums. Dump them on out one, on one on mile. One mile. Yeah. No way. But I yeah. went back and looked. I found a video. There were big crowds the whole street. Now there's sort of like, uh, you know, a few 
thousand hundred people st- standing at the finish. Old timers, email us. What was going on then? Was just tracks super popular? Or like there was just no events going on? But Sydney Marie was very good. I asked the human calculator before this. I'm like, hey, what John? What was Sydney Marie's PBs? And he knew them both to the second. John, tell the audience: fifteen hundred and five k PBs of Sydney Marie. Three twenty nine and thirteen oh one. I knew these because these were American records at the time. So I've gone back and sort of been for a while when I've tried to see like, oh, can someone break a record in these certain events that I would go back and look and it'd be like, whoa, Sydney Marie was really f-. like 329. No Americans run 329. The only Americans ever who have run 329 are Bernard Lagarde and Sydney Marie. So when you're one of the two guys in history to do it, it's not that hard for me to remember it. Wait, Centro and Leo both were 330? That's correct. That's funny. They ran 330, so my mind, I gave them the benefit of sub-330. I guess that's not how it works. Let me add in something that may or may not be deleted by Weldon. Or maybe it's only supporters club only. You have a young child. It may not be totally appropriate. Talk about the different era. I forgot who it was. I was listening to some show recently, like in the last year or so. And someone's like, the young people now, some guy, famous guy, he's like, they'll never know the effort that I went to back in the day just to see a woman's nipple. Like, people who are probably my age, between the ages of 45 and 50, like late at night, if you had cable TV, so cable TV, like 81, hardly anyone had it, but probably by 85 people had cable. And then late at night, you know, unless your dad was some perv who who signed up for the Playboy channel, like Cinemax would play some sort of steamy movies. But it wasn't like nude stuff, but eventually something would happen and you might see a part of a person's either scantily clad or maybe not clad totally. Well, I don't I don't know if this is because I've spent too much time talking to Robert over the years or because I just know the way his mind works. But when I heard him say People will never know the effort I went through to see. And I was like, I knew the next words out of his mouth were going to be a human nipple. I just knew that's well, what I think I've told you when I read this story or heard it that I told you about this at the time. And it was called Skinamax. People instead of calling it Cinemax, the teens called it Skinamax. Well, if we're gonna dive in there, I just want to say I listened to another podcast and they were talking about it's a fantasy football podcast, and they were talking about Back in the 80s, people had porn shacks in the woods where you would just, that was a safe place for neighborhood kids to access the, like, <laughs> they would store porn magazines out there so they wouldn't get caught by their parents or anything. It was a safe place for them to view porn in the woods. And I didn't know, you kids, you guys were kids in the 80s. I didn't know if this was something the Johnson brothers participated in or not. Absolutely not, John. We were raised by a proper young Southern woman. I don't hear any denials from Weldon. Maybe you guys didn't <laughs> spend every day together when you were growing up. No comments, John. <laughs> there weren't woods in Dallas, Texas. All right. Anything else on Fifth Avenue, or shall we move on? Well, that does get me to the technology question. Is there any other reason why to have it? I mean, I can't believe they even have incognito mode in every browser, but is that the only reason for it 
like to hide. Robert, how about eat? this? You you're you're planning a nice surprise for your wife, and you don't want her to figure it out. You don't want to see what you've been looking at on Amazon, so you go in incognito mode. Can yeah. a guy do that? Yeah, you don't you don't, you don't want your wife to know you've been planning an affair with your mistress, so you go in incognito. I gave you an out there, Robert. You didn't take it. So, all right. Well, guys, one other big thing of news of note this week. It's on the sponsorship front. I wonder what John will think about this. John Hancock has announced that it's ending its partnership with the Boston Marathon. They've been the sponsor of Boston for as long as I can remember. And they earlier this year cut ties with the Boston Red Sox. So it's the end of an era in Boston. So, John, are people talking about this in Boston? Is it a big deal? I haven't really talked to anyone about it from Boston. So I don't know exactly what's going on. But, yeah, reading the article, the Boston Globe had a story about this. The fact that they're also dropping their sponsorship of the Red Sox, and they have iconic real estate at Fenway Park. It's like the, the center field scoreboard right at the top. It says John Hancock on top. It's been there as long as I can remember going to games at Fenway Park. They've had that huge John Hancock sign, and that's going to be coming down. So to me, that says that they're just cutting back on advertising in general. It's not a shot at the Boston Marathon. I imagine that people that there will be interest in sponsoring the Boston marathon. It's one of the few marathons that most people in the United States are aware of New York city and Chicago both have title sponsors. Now the, the interesting part here though, is that the New York city marathon is the TCS New York city marathon. The Chicago marathon is the bank of America, Chicago marathon. The Boston Marathon is not the John Hancock Boston Marathon. It's never actually been the official title sponsor. And I know this thing doesn't matter that much to maybe you or me, but in terms of sponsorship and value and return of that, it's had its sponsorship associated with it, but the official name of the event is still the Boston Marathon. So I'm curious, will the BAA sort of be like, hey, this is sacred ground. You know, It'll be like renaming Lambeau Field after a sponsor or something like that. Or are they fine with just, yeah, we'll we'll join the club like New York and Chicago and we can become the TCS Boston Marathon if someone wanted to. What do you guys make of that? I think if they want to get a sponsor, they clearly need to give them the naming rights. One caveat you didn't mention, though, was the Bank of America owns the Chicago Marathon. So it's their marathon. Which Oh, I didn't know that. I'm really not a fan of. I think the, the marathon should be owned by nonprofits. We saw what happened when rock and roll sold out to all the hedge funds and whatnot. But hey, I'm also I'm kind of a communist. Everyone thinks I'm some far right winger, far from it. I kind of feel like all professional sports teams should be owned by the city as well. Public resources, if you're gonna build the stadium, if you're gonna shut the streets down, should be a cut. It's kinda of like Elon Musk. If we're gonna pay seventy if the government's gonna pay seven thousand five hundred dollars for every rich person to buy a Tesla and make Elon Musk the richest person on the planet, they should get a cut of that too. So there you go. Rojo's far left, far left uh, economic leanings that I learned back in my Princeton days. It'll be interesting, John, to see what Boston does. I don't think this is bad for the race at all. 
will they modernize and get with the times and get a sp- title sponsor? I'm not sure. Boston loves doing its own thing. It's tradition. Now, sometimes that's good. Like tradition's great, but sometimes it's bad, right? Like they barred Catherine Switzer from racing. Like a woman's not going to run our race. So if they have a title sponsor, it doesn't, I could care less if it's, hey, let's run.com. We're putting a bid out there. We will offer $1 million to be the title sponsor of Boston Marathon this year. We've, we've just thrown it out there. Wow. We don't have that money, John, but, you know, just FYI. But I'm sure someone will outbid that. So the last time I did this, I, next thing I knew, I'd spent five grand and I was sitting in Jason Garrett's box at a Dallas Cowboy game. I thought someone would outbid me, but I didn't realize I was at a art auction in, in Dallas, Texas, instead of a, with a sports crowd and my Cowboys tickets, four tickets, and the owner, the coach's box. People will pay like 20 grand for this. So I bid five grand right off the bat. And it's a great time. Great time. That's a lesson. Well, I guess you didn't learn your lesson because here you are bidding $1 million for the Boston Marathon. But I, I just, as lo- whoever the title, whoever the new sponsor is, I don't mind if they have the title sponsor. Just make sure you're investing in the elite athletes as long as you're well, continuing to put money into getting elite fields. That's all I care about. If they don't get an elite sponsor, sponsor the elite field is going to crater i'm sure they spend i imagine it's a couple million dollars a year certainly one million dollars a year so robert of course they're going to have a sponsor you think they'll be too prideful we're not going to have a naming sponsor so that their next sponsor will pay way less and then the fields will crater i guess they could go that route and then they'll quit being one of the premier marathons in the world prestige matters to these people they're nonprofits. they don't have to have a title sponsor i think a for-profit company 100 percent of the time would would take on a title sponsor here because that's how you get the most money now boston could decide we're going to give up a little money keep the name i mean a nonprofit is entitled to do that they're able to look at things besides just the immediate but i think i don't think they're gonna they're willing or I don't well, I guess a French word called pre stupid. I'll say too dumb to just be stubborn and be like, oh, we're not going to have a title sponsor. We're willing to take a lot way less money because no one else will pay what John Hancock was paying. I don't think that's going to happen. I hope that's not going to happen. I think the race, if anything, will have an allocated budget going forward. But who knows? Economy's kind of, you know, a little iffy right now. Okay. Can we talk about the other big road race of the week? North run pretty interesting because this race was being hyped. And I think when the press release came out, what July 1st or something like that, they hyped it as the greatest men's North run field ever. The course was returning to its traditional course for the first time since COVID. And originally the race was going to have 5,000 and 10,000 world record holder, Jesso Chepta guy. Also the Olympic 10,000 champ world champion. 5,000, no, world champ at 10,000 this year, right? Um, Selman Borrega, the Olympic 10K champ, and Jacob Caplimo, the world half marathon record holder. Chepta guy apparently is injured, John. I don't know if you know the details on that. So he did not end up running, but they sort of replaced him with Bikile. And in the end, they went out on like 61 flat pace for the first 10K, which is basically halfway. And then Caplimo destroyed everybody, ran like 59.30 or something like that, and won. But 
what do you guys think? I was like, they're announcing this as the greatest men's field. And I know Cheptegei, Borrega, and Caplimo, let's assume they did all show up. I'm sorry. That's not as good as Fake- Mo Farah, Kinesi Bekele, and Halle Gabersolesi, which was in 2013. Like, am I right or wrong? Like, the new three may be faster. I'm not even sure they are faster if you had it. Well, maybe Farah's PBs weren't that fast. But, right, Farah, Bekele, and Gab is better than Cheptegei, Borrega, and Caplimo. If you're talking about fitness, when they ran the race this year would have had an argument because Geb was a few years removed from his most recent world record in 2013. Farah was pretty much at the peak of his powers at that point. Bekele was kind of transitioning between the track and the marathon. But in terms of star power, it's no contest. 2013, I mean, those guys... I think that was our let's run picture of the year for 2013. It wasn't, it was just Gabriel Selassie, Bekele and Farah running the three of them next to each other. You very rarely get three all-time legends like that sharing the same space in a road race. So yeah, I do think that was more of a more famous star packed race. Now in terms of if you race them team style, those three in 2013 versus well, we didn't see Chapter Guy this year, but those three in twenty in twenty twenty two. Twenty twenty two guys might win, but star power, I think twenty thirteen is better. You make a decent point. Like the, these three are right in their prime in the terms of track stuff. Although Brega didn't have a very good year. But and what was Brega's time, John? Let's pull that up. So Brega ran sixty thirty nine, so not crazy fast. He did win World Indoors early this year, just to be fair. But he was second at 60-39. be interesting. Back in 2013, Bikile, remember, he fell off early. It was like rope-a-dope. And then he ends up winning, beating Fair by one second. That's what we thought Bikile, remember, people were wondering if Bikile was done. This was nine years ago. He beats Fair, and people are like, oh, he's back. And then he kind of keeps doing this every few years. He runs 60-09 for the win. Fair runs 60-10. And then Gabriel Celeste, ran 60-41. So Gabriel Celeste ran faster Um. Then Bekele today. Bekele did this year. So Bekele, Gabriel Celeste was 39 in that race. Bekele is now 40. And he runs, what, 60-41 versus 60-101. So what does this mean for you guys in terms of Bekele? I, I, I addressed this in the week that was. Somebody on the message board thread said this is a good sign. And I was like, it's hard for me to analyze this really. But the more I thought about it, I don't think this is a great sign for Bikile. Like, do we have any idea what his goals are for the London Marathon? What in, in is it two weeks? It's not next, not this weekend, but it's two and a half weeks from now. Yeah. So, the, he seems to be like a guy that still thinks he's got a shot at the outright world record, which I think is ludicrous at age 40. Like, we have to move on now. I think that's not going to happen. But, if he's thinking like that, he needs to run this effort the whole way because this is a downhill, normally downwind course. I'm not sure how much of a tailwind they were getting this year. I looked it up. It looked like more of a crosswind. But, you know, 61.01, the downhill is probably worth 15 or 20 seconds. This might be 30 seconds, 80. This is 61.30. Like, that's what they go out in in London these days. So, but 
if he was just trying to run that effort the whole way, then he did a pretty damn good job on it because he won 61-minute pace at halfway and he ran 61.01. But the second half is easier than the first half and is the most of the downhill. So he probably was fading a little bit. So I have a hard idea, hard time thinking, oh, he just thought I'm going to go pace this thing at marathon pace. I think he was trying to race it, got dropped, couldn't pick it up. And, you know, it's a good sign that he's healthy. Whenever he's healthy, he's such a big talent. That's good. I think he could maybe break the Masters world record. If he goes for that conservatively, but I don't think he's going to do that. So I don't know what to think. I mean, there's still Robert. There's, these are like two completely different universes. The Masters World Record, which is like 206 or something, and the World Record, which is 201. Look, the dude is 40. It's over. I'm sorry. He, he's like the boxer, you know. Keeps coming back, the former world champion. They they keep thinking, and then they get knocked out. Like this is you need to beat your physical prime in this sport. I guess boxing. We did have George Foreman. I don't know how. We I was about that. to make the, that comparison. Well, then <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we did that. So I I wish he, he was George Foreman, but I don't think it works like that in running. Well, women's running. Some of these women are doing really good at the marathon. Sarah Hall, out of Berlin, guys, just came in today. I don't know if you guys saw that. She's still planning on running New York, and but she was sort of second fiddle in Berlin. We got Cara D'Amato, the American record holder, and number one seed. That is a week from Sunday. Why is she out? She said, with just two months between Worlds and Berlin, I needed everything to go as planned, but unfortunately I suffered a setback with my IT band. I'm focused on the New York City Marathon and getting to the line, ready to run what I believe I'm capable of. And in terms of Bekele, I mean, I feel like a year ago or so, I told, after he scratched from Boston this year, I was like, oh, I need to stop starting or hopping on to Bekele hype trains. But look, if there is one guy in this sport that has shown he can kind of come back when we all think he's dead, not only within races, but within his career. It is Kennedy Sabakele. Because Robert was saying back in 2013, people didn't think he'd been injured on the track for years. He hadn't really done much. People were starting to wonder, is he done? Now he comes back, he debuts, he wins the Paris Marathon. We start to think, okay, this guy has got a bright marathon future. But then he kind of struggles a little bit, gets overweight. We're like, oh, is this guy done? No. Comes back, Berlin, 2016. Wins it. We're like, all right, new renaissance for Bekele. Uh, except then he starts faltering again, gets out of shape. Joss Herman's his agent, questions his motivation. Is this guy done? Nope, comes back 2019 Berlin, wins it two seconds away from the world record. So obviously, this gets harder to do the older you get. Now he's 40 years old, but. He's one guy I'm never, ever going to 100% count him out because he might be the most talented runner we've ever had. And we've seen time and again, he will come back and produce something special in the marathon. I think chances are it's more probable than not that he's going to get beaten pretty badly in London just because the fields are always so good. You have to be one of the best guys in the world. I'm not convinced he's one of the best guys in the world right now. But... The fact that he's he's running a half marathon, he's only run two half marathons in his career. So the fact that he's even running one 
three weeks out from race day, that to me is a positive sign. And 6101, it's not going to blow anyone's doors off, but it's not a total disaster either. So cautiously optimistic, I think, for Bekele. Don't get me wrong, John. I'm glad he ran 61 minutes here. I think it's encouraging. Maybe he can be a factor in London. But we already, the miracle comeback story that already happened, that was in 2019. We're not seeing that again. Any talk of a world record is nuts. I would have said that, yes, I would have said the exact same thing in 2019. But I'm more confident now, more confident now. Well, I also think this world record talk, we're talking as if the world record's 201.39, which it is as of this podcast. But when the London Marathon begins on October 2nd, the world record could be a whole hell of a lot faster. Because remember, Elliot Kipchoge oh, is on, running the world marathon next weekend. What do you mean, come on? You think the shoes have gotten that much better? I think Elliot can pace it smarter. It, look, why the hell? Robert, we talked about this when, when Kipchoge passed up New York for for berlin this year why is he going to berlin he doesn't have anything else to prove the only reason he could be going to berlin is he wants to take another chunk off that world record so yeah i think there's a good chance he breaks it next weekend then i guess you need to go to the race john get demato's america record is it october fast maybe i'll go gotta tell my wife but john well f if Bekele could run 201.41 over the hill at age 37, Kipchoge's not over the hill. And he's not 37 yet, is he? Rupp's 37. No, Kipchoge officially is 37, I believe. I think he was November of 1984. Oh, he's older than Rupp. So yeah, he turns 38 officially in November, but you know, a lot of people think he might be a little older than that. Rupp's a year younger. Rupp is 36. Correction there. Look, I thought about this. He needs to go out in the second pack with Mo Farah. Farah's PB is 205.11. They need a second pack at 205 flat pace. All these morons in, in, in London go out too hard anyways. They all go out and think they're going to run this world record and they blow up. Can we get can we get a list of the top five times average last five years? Like... And just try to do that. And you might get second or third by if you can hang on to that. Robert, I want this to happen. I think they, you know what? If London, I know the organizers of these marathons listen to this podcast. If we were create, to, to create the maximum drama, you have all the best guys go out on world record pace. Whatever, whether it's Kipchoge's current world record or whatever he runs in Berlin. You say, all right, you guys, we're all going out on this. And then Farah and Bekele... They go out a little bit more sensible, 205. And then the dramatic storyline here is, can Farah or Bekele run down the real stars of today by running a smarter-paced race? I think that would be... Could you imagine how exciting that is, Bekele or Farah hunting down the guys over the second half of the race? Oh, be phenomenal television. Robert Johnson rule. Everyone not named Bekele and Fele if not named Bekele and Farah must go out on world record page for the first half or they will not be paid <laughs> unless they're Americans and they can try to run, a, you know, 208 or something. But anybody born in Africa. All right. We're going to have a rule. Every There's like five Robert Johnson rules off to the end of this podcast. Now, one was well, the others were Weldon Johnson rules. Okay.
last year, 205 flat for the record would have gotten you third in London. Excuse me, fourth. Okay, one other thing we didn't discuss yet this week. Ellie Puria, sorry, Ellie St. Pierre has announced that she's pregnant. Congratulations to her and her husband. And I think in retrospect, it explains a lot about what happened to her in 2022 because she had a very interesting year. We thought coming off of her performance in 2021, especially her domination at the U.S. Olympic trials where she led essentially wire to wire, one in 358 low, she was going to be the woman to beat in the women's 1500 in the United States for a few years. And then, what you know, USA Indoors, she doesn't even make the team in the 1500. She gets beat by Heather McLean and Josette Norris. Then she comes back, wins the 3K, and then gets silver at Worlds in the 3000. So you're like, okay, maybe it was just a mental mistake by her in the 1500. But then she comes out outdoors. She gets COVID. Everyone you know, starts to worry again. Then she runs 359 at pre. We get excited. Then she struggles to make the team. She's only third at USA's. Doesn't make the final at Worlds. And then... In the mix zone afterwards, she gave sort of this strange interview to Robert where, you know, she was saying she didn't feel like herself, but this wasn't like she was down in the dumps and like, oh man, I, I should be in the world championship final on home soil. This is devastating. John, she was just like, let me play oh, the clip. Okay. It, yeah. It, it was really interesting because at the time I was, I kind of thought she was going to cry and was holding back tears. And in and, and hindsight, I do think she was, but it was, why is she happy after getting eliminated? Now it all makes sense. Here we go. This, after I asked her, hey, not the results you wanted, what happened out there? This is what she said. No, it's just tough running out there. I uh, give it my all. I'm not really feeling myself these days. So it's just, uh, you know, still made it to the semifinals of the world champs, not feeling myself. So it's good. Is anyone specific about No, not you really. haven't been feeling yourself? No, it's fine. I'm just tired. Just tired. Yeah. How'd you feel in the first round? Uh, it felt pretty good. It was, it was hotter. Um, still like fast for the first round, but to be expected. And the workouts have been coming in. Have they not been going well? Or? No, they've been going good. They've been going good. I just, uh, that's it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll see. Makes more sense now. A lot more sense. That's it. She didn't want to reveal anything. She's not really trying to keep a secret. I mean, everyone keeps their pregnancy secret like the first trimester outside of, or most people do, outside of close family. So it all makes a lot more sense now. Be cool to be that baby, right? You started off life competing at the World Championships. Even USA's. Baby was like two weeks old at USA's. Baby was probably feeling guilt. Mom fades to third, and they're like, "Come on, mom, make the team." I was trying to make a joke about kicking, but uh, couldn't think of a punchline in there. But so, when's the due date? March, early March, I think, of twenty twenty three. Okay, so worlds are out next year. I'll go there and say that for her. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's too bold a proclamation. You know, you hear some of these people like six months later they're coming back competing, but. I mean, timing-wise for her, I feel like it, it's pretty good with the focus of our sport being the Olympics. She can, she'll can, she have a year and a half to get ready for the next Olympic trials and you get used to you know being a mom and that sort of stuff. So 
Best of luck. Being a parent, I love it. Oh, some advice to her husband. When when they bring in ice chips in the delivery room, they're not for you. Um, give those to your wife. Does this come from experience, Weldon? Hey, we were in there like 36 hours. At one point, they brought some ice chips because I had like a soda and it was hot. And then later they brought in ice chips when she was p- pushing and I was told in certain terms that they weren't mine. <laughs> okay. All right, guys. Well, we'll preview Berlin next week because it is next Sunday. Anything else from the truck world you wanted to discuss before we wrap this one up? I think next week we can also do a little more. There was talk of doing it this week, like looking ahead to the next track season, that sort of stuff. But I think we can save some of that. And well, I guess but I don't need to say more than this. Robert's week that was, he looked at the people who won gold medals and didn't compete on the Diamond League. And somehow I missed this one. Anderson Peters, the javelin thrower from Granada, he didn't compete at the Diamond League because he was beaten up and thrown overboard on a boat in Granada. I mean, it sounds kind of crazy. Like, he's got to be the most famous athlete in Granada, right? Two-time world Karate champion. Jane. Oh, damn it. What are them? Damn, we think Norway's good at sports. Granada, man. And beaten up and thrown overboard on this boat. There's videos. I'll, I'll link to the video on Twitter. It's actually not that great of a fight, but it's sort of crazy. But got injured. Fortunately, it doesn't sound too serious. But hey, man, even if you're a superstar, I got to watch out these days. I was thinking, you know, I think we do it next week, but take a step back and think like what shocked us. I mean, if you looked at most of the, uh, just go to Wikipedia and look at the, at the names of the list of the world champions, like which of these people, if we said last year, they're going to be a world champion this year would really shock you. I mean, Jake Whiteman, but I thought going into the Olympic final yesterday, John, last year in Tokyo, didn't you think he had a shot to win it? Like he looked so good in the prelims. Certainly. I thought he had a shot. Yes. I thought he had, a, I'd said going into the 20th, 20- 22 world championships he was one of the five guys i could see winning it because he won the british trials and the trials was yeah so, so difficult this year but well, you know you know like still you, still yeah to go for after what he did in tokyo where he was what 10th to then go to the world champion the next year certainly a surprise but it's, it's you know we'll do this next week but most yeah. of the big names like noah lyles michael norman the winners here were people you would have expected and then also maybe we should look negatively like who flopped like who, you know, in, in American soccer or British football or whatever you want to call it, you know, you do badly, you get fired. Like who would get fired this year and track. It's not normally like that. I mean, generally the talented people have good seasons and the untalented people, you know, you don't, you don't hold it against them. You just know they're not talented enough. I mean, one of the negatives, probably the most disappointing seasons. I think if we were taking a step back, would have been Safan Hassan. Like, that would have shocked us. Oh, she doesn't medal. But then, you know, if you don't train for four or five months, it makes sense. Next week, though, we got a Friday 15 podcast. Second podcast for Supporters Club only m- members. Maybe we should do some of the stuff there. Because a lot of times we don't co- recover stuff, but the Diamond League final is so big, we talked about some of the stuff again here, just slightly different perspective on it. But, guys... 
think we saved some of this. The five biggest losers for track and field. All the people sitting on the fence who haven't signed up. They might sign up. But we love our supporters club members. Also, I'll play some audio. I just checked the voicemail. There's a supporters club member who says we should charge more money. Like double the price. Wow. He said he'd pay more, but he's actually complaining about some of the audio issues. If you got any feedback, any audio issues, email us, podcast at letsrun.com. John's excited. John was counting well, I'm money. Saying, for the record, if you would like to pay more, you are welcome to do so. Reach out. Let us know. We'll charge you a higher rate. No questions asked. Well, so you, you just need to get in touch. Let's run at let's run.com. Weldon Johnson at let's run.com. He'll set you up. Wow. John, the pr- probably second most liberal guy at let's run.com saying that. Meanwhile, we had a guy from Australia. He's trying to change his membership and he's like, I paid twice. He told us to keep it. He's like, oh, I love what you guys do. Keep it. This was an annual subscription. He wants to pay more. But hey, no. I, I just on my own. Probably in the more conservative spectrum. I was like, no, this guy gets to keep gets his money back. But apparently John wants to. Maybe all the bonus money just goes to John's pocket. That's how what we'll start around here. So we'll play some of that audio on the Supporters Club podcast. Start thinking ahead, guys. Fifth Avenue means end of the track season. Marathon season is here. And it's going to be better than ever because we got the London Marathon this fall. In addition to Berlin, New York, and our new what should be a major, Valencia. And Chicago. Yeah. Oh, oops. Sorry. <laughs> we got right. Re- yeah. They're going to be records, fast times, boots on the ground in London, boots on the ground in New York. Be great. Can't wait. All right. Until next time. Also, want to leave us a void mill. Oh, oh, sorry. We're still okay. going. No, it's fine. All right. Bye. Thanks. No, no, no. I thought you ended it. You can say what you want, but sorry. I thought it did end. I thought it did end. Oh. Also, you want to leave us a voicemail. One eight four four. Let's run. Oh, John, wait. Fake Josh Kerr. Fifth Avenue Mile, John. At the start, did you see this? Josh Kerr fell down. Did they not restart road miles? I guess not. Josh Kerr. He, wait, been... he ran. He ran three fifty one while falling down. Yes. He's the winner of this at that. He's the Scott who actually. I think we ran one two. Is what is. The other guy who got second, is he a Scott? Jake Hayward? No, he's Welsh. Oh, Welsh. Even rarer. Well, we would have a different Scott winning, I think. Who knows? Josh Kerr would have changed his season. Fell down. Give us a call, fake Josh Kerr. Let us know what you think. All right. Till next week.